a nuclear-free future. That's what we're fighting for, isn't it? A world without nukes and their deadly waste? Can we even get there? No way to find out if we don't try. So what will it take? More importantly, who will it take to get us there? It can sometimes feel real lonely out there in the battle against nukes, but the hidden story, the one that mass media doesn't bother to pay attention to, is how many of us there are, and that we are literally all around the world, and that we're working on every single aspect of nuclear issues, such as what it takes to make the case for arms control by figuring out how many nuclear weapons a country actually possesses when they don't want to tell you. To get that kind of technical information, it takes a brilliant German researcher who has come up with the concept of nuclear archaeology. And he explains... Nuclear archaeology would be super relevant in the North Korean case because the first question you would ask uh, North Korea as well, how many weapons have you got? And from actually measuring, taking measurements from the reactor that they operate, the Yongbyon reactor, you could deduce how much plutonium they produce. And with some assumptions on how much plutonium you need for a nuclear warhead, you could make an assessment of how many nuclear warheads North Korea possesses. It's not magic. It's just science, facts, and a real high level of critical thinking. Well, when you hear insights like that from German physicist Malte Goethe, as well as others, and you see the absolutely international nature of the pushback against nukes by researchers, scientists, and activists who in some countries are risking their lives to carry on the fight. You learn what's happening on the front lines of our battle to get out of that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halnady. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, We present the 2022 winners of the Nuclear Free Future Awards with excerpts from the Zoom Awards Ceremony. We'll hear brief interviews with Tanzanian activist Anthony Layamunda, who works tirelessly and at great personal risk to prevent uranium mining in his country. From German physics researcher Malte Goethe, whose group delivers what they call nuclear archaeology, rarely found expertise and resources to foster control and verification among nuclear weapons states. And you will hear a candid interview with some podcaster from the U.S. who is now in her 13th year of covering nuclear issues on the weekly show Nuclear Hot Seat. That would be me, Libby Halevi. Plus, we will have the co-founder of the Nuclear Free Future Awards, Klaus Biegert, announcing the 2023 winners and the upcoming awards celebration in person in New York. 
We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than House Republicans could be bothered to convey even if a nuke went off outside the Capitol building. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 17, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., where last month the first U.S.-owned nuclear enrichment plant to begin production since 1954 received Nuclear Regulatory Commission approval to process uranium at Piketon, Ohio site. The High Energy Low Enrichment Uranium, or HALU, is the fuel required by the fantasized about but none ever built small modular nuclear reactors. To learn about existing dangers at the Python site, listen to last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 642 and the interview with Dr. Michael Ketterer. From Edwin Lyman, physicist and director of nuclear power safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, we learn that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has made a decision to leave inadequate security measures for dry cask so-called spent nuclear fuel storage facilities in place and not upgrade them to provide needed extra protection against contemporary terrorist threats. And Florida Represent Byron Donalds has introduced a bill requiring a study on replacing the Capitol Power Plant in Washington, D.C. with a nuclear reactor, or as Edwin Lyman calls it, the perfect target for the next crop of January 6th insurrectionists. Regarding Japan's ongoing release of tritium-contaminated radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, on Monday, October 16, Russia suspended all Japanese seafood imports, a step that has also been taken by China. Japan's response to the decision by Russia is to call it extremely regrettable, and we strongly demand its withdrawal, to which Nuclear Hot Seat replies, don't hold your breath. The Nuclear Free Asia Forum, founded in 1993, held its first in-person gathering since COVID in September, with anti-nuclear civil society members from Japan, Taiwan, Thailand, India, the Philippines, Australia, and Turkey. We will link to an article about it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 643. Russia is withdrawing its ratification of the global treaty banning nuclear tests though a senior foreign ministry official told Russian media banning nuclear tests does not mean that it intends to conduct such a test. The 1969 treaty, referred to as CTBT, bans, quote, any nuclear weapon test explosion or any other nuclear explosion anywhere in the world. We'll link to an article that explains it all. Not reassuring when you consider that in September, Russia staged its first national nuclear attack exercise across 11 time zones in preparation for potential nuclear war. Russian President Vladimir Putin confirmed that the country has successfully tested an experimental nuclear-powered missile with a range up to 14,000 miles. And it's been reported that Russia is preparing to test the nuclear weapon in the Arctic. NATO's response? They're holding major nuclear exercises next week. Feel safer yet? In Greece, research by the Environmental Radioactivity Laboratory of the National Kapodistrian University of Athens reveals that radioactive traces linked to Chernobyl are still found in Athens 37 years after the accident. 
Not surprising, because while cesium-137 has a half-life of 30 years, and if one weren't looking closely, that might look like an appropriate period of time to have passed, it takes from 10 to 20 half-life cycles before the radioactive substance will be completely inert and no longer a radioactive threat. One would think that an environmental radioactivity lab of a major university would know that and realize that everywhere that Chernobyl radiation showed up, it's going to take 300 years before it's gone. I wonder what else will be in ruins in Greece by then. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The International Atomic Energy Agency and Belgium will host the first ever nuclear energy summit in March of next year. Think the IAEA is an impartial judge of nuclear safety? Think again. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi will be co-chair of the summit and in the IAEA press release states... Nuclear energy is an indispensable part of the solution to some of the most pressing global challenges of our time. What, like the cash flow bottom line of nuclear reactor producing companies? He says the summit will be a venue for building closer ties between political and industry executives. In other words, look under the table and see what's being passed, preferably in cash. And among the industry leaders, heads of think tanks, experts, and representatives from civil society who are cited, and a list of high-sounding topics, not once, not once, is the R-word mention. Radiation, or if you prefer, radioactivity. This press release cites the full potential of nuclear power in contributing to net zero emissions. Can we reclassify radiation, radioactivity, as an emission? And it closes on this quote from Grossi. Nuclear power is a clean and reliable source of energy, and the world needs much more of it. Tell that to the people near Zaporizhia, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and all the others. Expletive deleted you, Rafael Grossi, IAEA, and this nuclear energy summit. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Now here's this week's special feature. The Nuclear Free Future Foundation educates people about the dangers of using nuclear technology for civilian and military purposes. Since 1998, the group has given awards to international activists to acknowledge their work and support them into the future. Here, we present interviews with three of the five winners from 2022. First, Anthony Liamunda from Tanzania. He has worked tirelessly to prevent uranium mining in his native country. His organization, Civil Education is the Solution for Poverty and Environmental Management, or CSOP, empowers local people with an understanding of the political process and their own rights, and he has led the way in opposition to uranium mining. While Anthony and his group successfully defeated uranium mining plans in his area, the Bahi region, the group remains active in opposing Rosatom, active in the southwest of the country. Here, he is interviewed by Gunter Wippel of uraniumnetwork.org, a graduate economist who has been campaigning against nuclear mining for many years. Could you explain a little bit what the name CESOPE stands for? Yeah, CESOPE uh, stands for Civil Education is a Solution to Poverty and Environmental Management. We believe, we believe that through civil education, we can 
that create poverty also we can manage to maintain environmental management. What is the most important aspect for people in Ma Bahi and Manioni area? The dangers of radioactivity, the loss of land or other issues? Here is the boss because radioactive is dangerous. Whoever that mining will take place, but later the land will be not available for, for, for farming activity. Also, as you know that Tanzanian, most of the people are farmers. So if there is any company taking some land to the villages, this is meaning that the land is belonging to him or her is going to lost forever. So they will suffer by for the poverty also. For us, both of which is more important. So it has been a long struggle and there were many difficulties. I mentioned it also for you personally. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Any struggle always going with the problem. I remember I was during the campaign in Manioni and, and Bahi, there the two companies who are making exploration that time, that it was Ulanax from Australia and also Mantra Resource from Australia. During that time, also we know that in Africa, our government in Africa, they are depending tax from this company. So if they see someone is making something wrong, this will be getting trouble. So one day I have been visited with a known person and he told me openly that you, you stop your campaign because you, as long as you're going with your campaign, anything will happen, no blame, nobody. From that time, I have been followed by an unknown car wherever that I go. So this gave me very hard time. I decided to land the country at the moment. I go to Germany for three months. Then I let the things to cool down. Then I come back and still go on with the campaign. But still, the threat, it was around me. Now, are you and uh, Jasope cooperating with other NGOs in Africa or internationally? Yes. As, as you were explaining, we have been conducted international conferences since 2009, 2013, and 2014. We conduct a lot of international international conferences. So from inside the country, we are cooperating with the Tanzania Human Rights Defender because this is the one who try to help us how to, to survive because of this threat. But also Human Rights Center, we are cooperating inside the country. But outside the country, we have also NACUM, that is the umbrella in Tanzania for uranium. But also we have our African Uranium Alliance. This has been formed 2009 because also it was necessary to work things together. But we have a lot of organizations who are supporting us, who are working with us, like Uranium Network in German, IPPNW, we managed also to work together. In 2013, we have a conference together. So we have really a lot of alliance all over the world. Actually, at that time, the price of uranium was high and companies went to nearly every country in Africa to find and explore for uranium. Now, Russian state-owned company Rosatom owns via different subsidiaries the Mukut River project in uh, Selu Game Reserve. I know it's another region of Tanzania, but can you say something about it anyway? Yes, of course, I can say something about Rosatom. Rosatom, he buys the share from... Australian company called Mantra Resource. During to Tanzania's law, Mantra Resource have been decided to mine open pit mining, open cast mining, 
and they did the environmental impact assessment according to this method. And also the Tanzania Codinemki, this is the National Environmental Council of Tanzania who is responsible to guide the environment, whether that you are dealing to have a big project, so he's going to destroy the environment. So you have to make environment impact assessment. The material resource manager to do that, and also we participate in that. Later, when they share to Los Atom, Los Atom, they come and they decide to change the mining method through their daughter company, this Uranium One, from open cut to in situ rich. So according to the NEMC, if you change any kind of method, you have to redo a new environmental impact assessment because uh, the effect is not the same. If you are mining open cut, the, the effect to the environment will be different. Also, if the in situ rich, this will be very dangerous for the grounding water. But since they come and Rosatom didn't be pay attention or to do uh, this environmental impact assessment. Last year, in 2012, we visited uh, Tanzania Atomic Energy Commission, especially for this reason to ask them why this company, they are not doing a new environmental impact assessment according to the National Environmental Council of Tanzania. They say, oh, this they are very expert. I think they know they will take care. So there is no necessary to do that. But also they say, we give them five years prior mining. This is meaning prior mining, you mine without paying any tax. So this is the situation that we are really fencing to the Tanzania authorities. So Rosatom is very set now to mines a deposit and uh, they don't have to pay taxes or anything for five years. Huh? Great. And last question, maybe. Since the beginning of 2023, we hear that uranium companies are coming again to Tanzania to explore for uranium from Australia, actually. What is going on there? As you speaking, that the uranium price has been coming up. And also the price of uranium, even the late other company to stop mining uranium because it was not easy to mine and get profit for it. So now the price of uranium is up. Also, we have a new company from Australia called Auking, that the one who buy the share from Ulanax that you have been making exploration in the middle of, of Tanzania and also in Bahi and, and Manion. So now they are here. Two weeks or one month ago, I visited in the field. Of course, I saw what they are going on and what they are doing. So I think in the year coming, we really have a big job to do because most of the company, they will come to try mining uranium in Tanzania because in the center of Tanzania, we don't have a mining now. But I think in a few years, according to this issue of uranium rising up, we'll have another company. So I think Sesope, we have a very big duty to do that. And also we really, really need support from all people who are really ready to support us to fight this issue of uranium. Tanzanian anti-nuclear activist Anthony Liamunda, hearing of his work against uranium mining, points out that the exact same issues with in-situ uranium mining are being faced by and fought against by members of Navajo Nation and undoubtedly many other areas as well. Wherever we find ourselves in the world, the nuclear industry uses the same playbook, the same pressure points, and the same assumptions to try to move their work forward. And that's why the insights that activists discover in one battle can help inform the battle of others, no matter where they are on Earth. The second interview 
is with Malte Goetze. He is a young German junior professor and researcher in physics dealing with new verifications possibilities in nuclear arms control, particularly focusing on monitoring disarmament among nuclear weapon states. He heads the research group Verification and Nuclear Disarmament in Aachen, Germany, and based on the work done by his young team of 11 highly competent and committed women and men, he develops new promising methodologies, what he calls the nuclear archaeology of nuclear arms control. His group delivers rarely found expertise and resources to foster this control and verification among nuclear weapons states, a scarce and often politically neglected area. Malti's working credo is inspired by Karl Friedrich von Wietzsacher. He said, The scientist often retreats to the ivory tower of pure research, and I would like to say that this is not enough for scientific youth. Malti is interviewed by Sasha Hash, formerly with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and now a research associate at the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt. Yeah, thank you for your kind words, uh, Sasha. And I'm really humbled to be part of this group because it's so diverse. Uh, I mean, I'm representing the maybe not old, but at least white man <laughs> in the group. But I'm really happy that this award really has gone around the world. Uh, I think this is really important. So I'm very happy about that. As what you are inventing or what you're doing research on is very technical and very um, complicated, could you like briefly explain uh, for us to better understand what's new about your verification methodology uh, that you're working on? Yeah, so you, you probably know about the International Atomic Energy Agency, that it's doing safeguards, verifying the non-proliferation treaty. But uh, here's the thing. The IEA is only verifying non-proliferation in non-nuclear weapon states. There is absolutely no international or multilateral verification uh, in nuclear weapon states about the nuclear weapons, about the arsenals. There are, of course, arms control agreements, or there uh, used to be arms control agreements, uh, uh, and there were bilateral verification regimes between US and, and Russia. But the international community itself uh, has never had the right to uh, learn what's going on in the nuclear weapon states. And for nuclear disarmament, this has to change. Because at some point, uh, also the international community at large, including the non-nuclear weapon states, will need to have confidence about what the nuclear weapon states are doing, what they're up to. And this is ultimately the, the goal of my research and also the, the research of uh, quite a number of other people. So we're trying to develop these techniques. They don't exist yet because some of the challenges are different. How do you measure a warhead? How close can you go to a warhead? And what do you do with this super complex history? of fissile material production. The IEA has been in most non-nuclear weapon states from the start of their nuclear programs. But how do you come into a nuclear weapon state that has decades of complex fissile material production? How can you get confidence in the materials that they have and the warheads uh, that they build? So this is the research I'm doing. This is the nuclear archaeology uh, research. And yes, it's it's actually quite technical. You can, you can earn your physics PhD on this topic. There are different measurements you can take and shut down nuclear facilities. You can go to a shutdown reactor and take a sample from it and try to learn something about the path of this reactor, how much plutonium has produced there and other techniques. So I, I think this is super exciting as a physicist to uh, contribute to the debate by actually doing something, making something. 
do you have any like uh, example in mind or is there uh, could you make a case you know in which concrete context or political conflict or challenge question we are dealing with problems in nuclear arms control that we couldn't solve so far that you could apply uh, your methodology on or you would provide solutions yeah i mean un unfortunately nuclear disarmament i think is not exactly around the corner these days uh, inherently it's a political problem and not a technical problem but this has long term re relevance first of all i mean if you want to design disarmament if you if you so will uh, one important aspect is irreversibility you want disarmament or those states that disarm to have this process be irreversible but When you take apart a nuclear weapon, uh, the fissile material that uh, uh, you get out, you can use it to build a new nuclear weapon. So somehow we have to capture these fissile materials. So the long-term relevance is bringing irreversibility into the game from a technical point of view. A couple of years ago, there was this lively debate about uh, the prospects of denuclearization in North Korea. I mean, we all know Donald Trump and King Jong-un, uh, this sort of thing, but uh, they were actually talking. There is not so much talk these days. So nuclear archaeology would be super relevant in the North Korean case, because the first question you would ask uh, North Korea as well, how many weapons have you got? And from actually measuring, taking uh, measurements from the reactor that they operate, the Yongbyon reactor, you could deduce how much plutonium they produce. And with some assumptions on uh, how much plutonium you need for a nuclear warhead, you could make an assessment of how many nuclear warheads North Korea Possesses, But I think also this debate has moved to the long term, uh, unfortunately, but nevertheless, I find it super important to keep moving and keep doing the research because it takes years, if not decades, to develop these sort of technologies. So there is work to do. Looking into the future, I mentioned the tasks that we need to uh, include new nuclear weapon states and nuclear arms control and nuclear disarmament. And I also said that probably non-nuclear weapon states who concluded the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons also want to take part in this. And you already talked about like the challenge of confidence and the importance of confidence building measures or te techniques in uh, disarmament verification. How could your methodology contribute to including non-nuclear weapon states in nuclear arms control? Is there some, are there some opportunities and potential? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say that it's not, you know, nice to have nuclear weapon states on board. They actually legally have to be on board because the Non-Proliferation Treaty says it's uh, under Article 6 that nuclear disarmament is to happen under strict and effective international control. So that's not only nuclear weapon states business. There are many researchers around the world, in particular in the US, who develop verification technologies. But much of the work, most of the work, is done in the national labs, it's classified, so we don't know that much. The US develops technologies and then they say, well, here, we've developed this technology, we can do this now. But the question is, who would trust this technology? So I think fundamentally, uh, the question of trust in technology, trust in verification technology means that the development of, of technologies and approaches has to be transparent. Ideally, there is even an international joint development of these technologies. And what I try to do with my research is to make everything transparent. Everything is published. Uh, we publish even our computer code for the geeks who really want to dive in uh, into these sorts of things. And that's very different from uh, what's happening in most of the other areas where nuclear verification research is happening. One of the main arguments or reasons that China, for instance, stresses not to participate in nuclear arms control 
is on on the one hand the different level obviously of arsenals but on the other hand also it doesn't trust the verification methodologies developed in the bilateral disarmament uh, treaties between Russia and the US so we need something like impartial in this like also on the technical level to um, integrate or include new nuclear weapon states but also non-nuclear weapon states China has a fundamental distrust in the motivations of the United States right China I thinks that basically any action the United States is taking is to keep China as weak as possible, right? So they are very skeptical of this concept of transparency because they would think that, you know, the US are just trying to use this to their advantage. So I think, again, here also bringing in other states, other perspectives, uh, cannot solve the problem. I mean, there's not an easy problem to solve, but can... I somehow en en enlarge the debate, the discussion, and not just make it a, a US versus China issue. My next question is a bit personal and uh, refers maybe to that as a physicist, like in Europe, a talented physicist, you have plenty of career options, uh, actually. And uh, nuclear physics, at least in Germany, is doesn't appear to me a very promising, a great career, and especially not on uh, disarmament and arms control issues. So what was for you, you know, the driving moment, the motivation that made you decide, take care of this topic? I remember this exactly. Uh, this was the third term of my physics studies. So I was, how old was I? 21, maybe. And I studied physics, quantum physics, quantum theory, solid state th theory, etc., And at some point I was wondering, why am I doing this? What am I going to do with it? Uh, I mean, I, I am a strong defender of basic research, but this was not really where I saw my personal role. And then I was really happy uh, to see that there was actually a professor in Hamburg who offered a course that was on the Iranian nuclear program that kind of gave me an opportunity to apply or learn to apply physics to, you know, actual societal problems. And uh, I, I started organizing a Model United Nations conference in Geneva. I think that's, that was alongside some uh, NPT PrepCom and uh, that got me hooked and I'm, I'm still here. So yeah, nuclear physics is not a hot topic, maybe for good because we've uh, phased out uh, of nuclear energy in Germany, as many of you will know. But I still find that there is a, quite some interest among the young people in my research. And that's exactly those physicists who now ask themselves the questions that I asked myself quite some time back by now. And this is really what motivates me, educating young people, getting in touch with young people, debating with them. And so this is a, actually a lively field. German physicist and researcher Malte Gotsche. Now for the interview with the third Nuclear Free Future Award winner for 2022. I was honored and humbled to be recognized by the Nuclear Free Future Foundation and be given the 2022 Award for Education. Linda Penskunter of Beyond Nuclear, and now one of the organizers of the Nuclear Free Future Awards, introduced me on the Zoom call. Her questions then inspired the most insightful interview of my career. So how do you talk about every possible aspect of the nuclear power, nuclear weapons nightmare every week for an hour with a wide range of fascinating guests whom you have to first find, research, book, and then adeptly interrogate in the nicest possible way? Libby Halevi has pulled this off for more than 12 years. 
Her weekly podcast is called Nuclear Hot Seat. And if you've ever sat in that hot seat, you'll know how warm it is. Friendly, vibrant, lively, curious. These are all characteristics of the show and of Libby herself. For this remarkable achievement and dedication to educating a wider public about the perils of the nuclear age, Libby Halevi was selected as the winner of the 2022 Nuclear Free Future Award in the category of education. Now in its 13th year, Nuclear Hot Seat began after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. And in a moment, we'll talk to Libby about why that event in particular woke her up to the nuclear dangers, or maybe we should say reawakened, because Libby was just a mile from Three Mile Island when it had its nuclear meltdown in 1979. And she later came to write a book about her life and those experiences called, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. As you can tell from that book title, Libby also knows we mustn't take even a grim subject like nuclear too seriously all of the time or ourselves. So she also has a segment on the show called Numb Nuts of the Week. And yes, because she has so much spare time, Libby has also written a musical about Three Mile Island, Kazoo, and a play about media manipulation at the dawn of the atomic age, Atomic Bill and the Payment Due. And you can find out more about all of her work and how to support it on her website, nuclearhotseat.com. This year, Libby received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the International Uranium Film Festival, and she will serve as the festival's ambassador to the USA during its 2024 North American tour. Welcome, Libby. Thank you very much, Linda. So first of all, tell us about your epiphany after Fukushima. Why was it that disaster in particular that propelled you into nuclear activism and into the creation of Nuclear Hot Seat? I was so post-traumatic stressed after my experience at Three Mile Island that I tried to get involved as an activist and I simply could not. It was too overwhelming. When Chernobyl happened, I ignored it because I was already afraid of nuclear. Now everybody else was being afraid of nuclear. I didn't have to go there. But with Fukushima, first of all, many years had passed. Secondly, we had social media. So as it was happening and I was recognizing the dangers, I was watching on, on wherever it was, YouTube, Facebook, wherever I could find footage. And it was overwhelming to me. And Three months after Fukushima happened, I was on a retreat in Sequoia National Park, which is one of my favorite places. I was hugging trees. I was apologizing to the universe, whatever. And I got the inspiration there to do a podcast. It was like a voice in my right ear saying, you will do your first podcast this Tuesday. I didn't know how to do a podcast. I didn't know nuclear, but that was the inspiration I started. And it's been every week since then. Wow, uh, that's impressive. And, and and yet, as you mentioned, you alluded to this, you know, this wasn't your first brush with nuclear dangers. So, you know, you talk about the trauma of that Three Mile Island experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what what happened that day and how that affected you in the in the immediate aftermath? I was staying with friends who did not have a television set, so we weren't plugged into the media. The first day we heard about it, but we dismissed it as just media hype. 
the second day I went, well, I'm a freelance writer. Let's go out and get some information and do it. So I'm walking around not knowing that this is the exact time that the plume was coming out, the thick part of the plume of radiation. And I interviewed people and I ended up writing an article that appeared in LA Weekly. That was one of the places I was writing for. But we really weren't upset until the third day I was alone in the house. I didn't know anybody. I had no transportation. And an announcement came down the middle of the street in loudspeakers saying, stay indoors, do not touch your doors and windows, do not go outside. And basically it was shelter in place. I had no choice because I had nowhere to go. The phones weren't working. They were overloaded. I was completely isolated. And the terror of not knowing if that thing was going to explode or just simply spew radiation. I grew up in the 1950s. We knew about the Cold War, but everything bad about nuclear was supposed to come from the Russians, not come from ourselves in our own backyard. And suddenly, without knowing anything about this being in a strange place, one mile away, the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island was going through what it went through. And it completely changed my life. I was terrorized. We managed to evacuate. We evacuated for 10 days before I came back to Los Angeles. But the change had already happened. And yet nobody understood because on the West Coast, it was like, oh, that happened back East. Nothing happened there because the propaganda was already out. And it took me until nuclear hot seat to find out the reality of it. And certainly there was an incredible cover up, obviously, of Three Mile Island. Still today, you hear that no one died and it wasn't really that big a deal. Um, but you, so you said you were in this forest hugging sequoia, you know, in sequoia hugging trees. <laughs> and one spoke to you in your right ear um, about nuclear hot seat. So and that you'd never done a podcast and you really weren't fluent in the issue. So what? tell us about that first episode. What was that like saying, okay, I'm doing this, I'm really doing this, and who? do you remember who was on it? Like, how did you put it all together? The first one I did was actually a conference call, and I posted once on my website saying, because I wasn't sure about this, that would anybody be interested in getting on a call so I could explore what this might look like? And uh, two people, including one who I'd never had any contact with, uh, came on the call with me. And I just said, I'm thinking about doing this. Does this make any sense? I mean, I don't really know that much and blah, blah, blah. And they both convinced me that this was a good idea, that people wanted to talk about it or at least know about it and to do what I could. And I said, well, I'll do this until I don't feel like doing it or until there's no need for it. And here I am more than 12 years later. And how's it grown in the past 12 years? Because obviously now you've got a huge audience, right? It's international and, and you're, I imagine, unique in having that market, you know, this, this topic so uh, covered so uh, consistently and comprehensively every week. It's 124 countries that I know of. There may be others that have gone forwarded, forwarded, forwarded. Um, the show grew from me. I've done radio in the past. That's my first degree. I also founded a radio program on the gay community in um, in uh, Boston when I lived there. And I've done a lot of media, but I've never been the one completely in charge, which is what a podcast allows one to do. And it started out with me talking aloud. I started out with trying to do it live at uh, four o'clock on Tuesday afternoons. That didn't work because people didn't show up. I tried opening it up for live questions. I finally had to like corral somebody, somebody from my first call into actually being on 
that and giving him questions to ask just to prime the pump. Because they say, well, we, do we have any questions from the audience? And there'd be nothing. So gradually it became recorded. Then I learned about editing to take out the uhs and the ums and the places where we step on each other's tongues. And beyond that, as I kept doing it, people began to trust me that I wasn't some flake because there were a lot of people who came out with YouTube programs and podcasts going, oh, send me money. And they got a lot of money. I never did. But what I was concerned with, because I have a journalistic background, is I wanted to present the truth with wisecracks, but with no embellishment of that truth. I did. I wanted to give people the facts because with information, we're capable of doing things, of operating, of communicating, of knowing what's going on. Without that form of communication, we're all in individual silos and we don't have the power of the communal voice. I mean, my musical theater background came into play because I have a theme song and for Numb Nuts, we've got a jingle for that. But one of the lines in the opening lyric is the activists are linking. And that was my goal to let people know this person over here, that one over there, here's that issue, here's that issue. And in the process, I was educating myself. And I think part of my advantage in not having been part of a nuclear movement before that, an anti-nuclear movement before that, is that I came in with the naive questions that most of my listeners would have. So I like to say that the show is for people who know nothing about nuclear, who want to know something, and people who already know something, who would like to know a little bit more. I think that's so important as well, to be, because it is quite an arcane subject to be able to communicate it in a very accessible sort of lay way, and, and also with a bit of humor really helps a lot. And so given the incredible, in fact, array of people who you could bring on the show. I mean, at first you, you think, well, how can there possibly be enough people, enough subject matters? But as you've proven in the last 12, 13 years and more than enough, do you select, when you select your interview subjects each week and the topics, is it based usually on what's happening on some topical hook or is it, you know, somebody you've come across that you think will just be an interesting story or an interesting interview? Both. It is completely eclectic. It is completely from my perspective. If there's something hot in the news, I want to have someone on who can speak authoritatively to it because that clears up confusion. And it also gives us ammunition because people will take a full episode or they just excerpt out the interview. And I always have at least 30 minutes of interview on each show. Um, they have that material to send to their local people, to their legislators, to whoever is in a position of authority or the media and say, here's this information. What are you going to do about it? It backs them up. I also am always on the lookout for books, movies, television programs, because the media is more and more coming to be our ally. There's some amazing films that are out. There's some astonishing books that have been published. And to talk with the people who are the originators of that, not only their struggles to get it done, but the content as well and what they hope will happen as a result, that opens it up for other people to go, I want to see that movie. I want to buy that book. Let's watch this TV program. And the information spreads. Nuclear Hot Seat's a hub for getting the information out. And it's, first of all, wherever I see to reach out to somebody. And secondly, whoever gets back to me in time, sometimes it will take me weeks, if not months, if ever, to nail certain people for interviews. But I keep going after it because everybody's voice is important. Absolutely. And 
and of all the voices, I mean, you've obviously had lots of voices on the show. Um, and I'm sure this is a very difficult question to answer, but is there one interview that sort of stands out for you or a particular person that you had on that moved you more than usual? I mean, not especially better than anyone else, but is there, which one, is there one that resonated with you that, or surprised you in a way that you didn't expect? There are three. Um, one of them was Sister Megan Rice who was the 83-year-old nun who broke into the the, the TVA, the uh, Oak Ridge site. Um, I caught her right after she got out of jail, right after she got out of prison. And I usually use that as my Christmas show. A second one, and I, you, you surprised me here. I'm struggling to remember her name. The woman who uh, gave me the interview about radiation, who... Um, I'm blanking on the specifics right now. I'll bring it in at another time. Uh, but the third one was a surprising one this year. And that came from uh, Robert Jacobs, known as Bo Jacobs, from the Hiroshima Peace Institute. He wrote a book about we are all we are all nuclear hibaksha. We are all hibaksha. And he did it in such a humane and sensitive way, the book. And then the interview was so profound. Usually I limit the time that I talk to somebody to 30 to 40 minutes because that will give me my interview. We talked for an hour and a half and I made it over two episodes because what he was saying was so profound and so deeply moving. And that will be one of my cornerstone pieces as I go forward. That one will be repeated at least once a year. Later in the ceremony, I was able to add in material that I had unfortunately skipped initially. In your search for information what do you need from the folks out there can other people contribute in some way to giving you story ideas absolutely i even solicit for that on the show every week i don't know what's happening on the ground right in front of you if you don't let me know i check social media i check the news i'm on everybody's newsletters but the bottom line is you see it more clearly and more specifically than I can from a distance. So anybody who is on this call right now from the other panelists whose work I honor as being so critical to what we're doing, to everybody who is watching this right now, you are my sources. You are the on-the-ground network that helps nuclear hot seat get the cutting-edge stories and report them with accuracy. If you have anything you want to make me aware of, the email is info at nuclearhotseat.com. And the one thing I wanted to add was the name that I glitched on for the, for the interview that was so important was Allison Katz of Independent WHO talking the truth about Chernobyl and where UNSCIR and the IAEA and all the other agencies got it wrong. Uh, it's most recently Nuclear Hot Seat number 623 from May 30th, 2023. There were two other awards given for 2022 for individuals who were unable to be on the call. Honorary awards for their lifelong achievements went to anti-nuclear waste activist Céline Lecomte and to German protester Ermgard Dietl, who fought against attempts to site a reprocessing plant in Wackersdorf, Germany. Finally, we heard from Klaus Biegert, one of the founders of the Nuclear Free Future Awards, as he announced the winners for 2023. In 2023, exactly on November the 28th, we will have 
an award ceremony in New York. We will be embedded in the meeting of states parties for the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. As you might know, 65 states have ratified this treaty and four more are pending. And uh, we will be on Tuesday, November the 28th, we will be across from the United Nations at the Church Center at 777 United Nations Plaza at 5.30. If you know people who live on the East Coast, let them know. And if you have a chance to come, come. And I like to introduce to you now the laureates of 2023. One is Tina Cordova. Tina Cordova is a seventh generation native New Mexican. She's a cancer survivor and the co-founder of the Tula Rosa Basin Downwinders Consortium. And she has campaigned over 18 years to bring attention to the negative health effects suffered by the unknowing, unwilling, uncompensated, innocent victims of the first nuclear blast. The first nuclear blast was Trinity near Alamogordo in the desert white sands in New Mexico on Apache land. You might have all seen Oppenheimer. When I saw it, I was waiting that in the end, sometimes you read in a movie what is happening today behind the story. I was waiting to read that the victims, the downwinders of this first atomic test never got compensated, but there was no line. They were never classified as downwinders, but Tina and her allies are making extraordinary progress to ensure that they are included under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. There is an act like this, but they're not part of it. The next one is Benedict Kabua Madison. He is a young US-based Marshallese activist who this year became the executive director of the Arkansas-based Marshallese Educational Initiative. He works to educate both US and international audiences about the terrible legacy of the 67 US atomic tests conducted in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1958. And of course, the ongoing health, environmental and cultural consequences of those detonations affecting multiple generations with previously unknown epidemics of birth defects and cancers. Benedict is a strong supporter of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Then I come to Hinamora Morgan Cross. She is a French Polynesian in her mid-30s whose realization that her own leukemia was a legacy of the French atomic tests in the South Pacific led her into activism. Inamora works to ensure that the stories and experiences of the victims and their families will not be forgotten and to pressure the French government into both acknowledgement of responsibility and medical and financial support. She was elected to the Polynesian Assembly of Representatives last May and just last month shepherded it through unanimous assembly vote supporting the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. 
And then we have an honorary lifetime achievement award, but this one is a posthumous award and it goes to the late Daniel Ellsberg. There is no time today to do justice here in this podcast, in this uh, webinar for Dan. He is perhaps best known for exposing US government decision-making about the Vietnam War when he leaked the Pentagon Papers. However, Daniel Ellsberg was also a nuclear insider, a person who saw firsthand and even participated in planning for nuclear war. He saw firsthand something he exposed in detail in his remarkable and chilling final book, The Doomsday Machine. So these are the people of 2023. Klaus Spiegert, one of the founders of the Nuclear Free Future Awards. This year, for 2023, for the first time since before COVID, there will be an in-person award ceremony in New York City on Tuesday, November 28. It will take place in a hotel across the street from the United Nations and is time to coincide with and be part of the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, a full week of meetings and actions organized by ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. I'll have more information on this in the coming weeks, but for now, know that I intend to be there not only for the award ceremony, but to cover as many sessions at the United Nations as I can and bring all that information back to you. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Like I promised, here are some things that you can do. If you happen to be in New York City or can get there, the week of November 27th through December 1st, there will be a series of events, meetings, and actions taking place surrounding the second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We'll have a link up to the full calendar, and if you can get there, please do. We need all the support we can get. As for a petition to sign, Citizens Resistance at Fermi 2, or CRAFT, is an indigenous-led, people-powered organization focused on Earth, ancestor, and descendant-honoring practices. The Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy has issued a draft permit for the Fermi 2 nuclear reactor to use and abuse Lake Erie water. The communities around Fermi 2 and Lake Erie cannot afford five years of dangerous chemicals and thermal pollution while officials do nothing to stop the problems. They're asking for your signature on a petition, and we will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 643. We'll also link to an article that explains all the issues involved. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 17, 2023. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel, or cut to the chase, go to nuclearhotseat.com. You can't miss the big yellow box that pops up, so put in your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one email that includes a link to the show and a short description of its content. That method also helps us with our numbers and our Google rating and our algorithms and all that stuff I don't really understand, but people who are in the know tell me it's good. So go through the website and the database if you can. Now, as I say every week, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, 
If you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything, anything at all, we will appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, Hardestry Communications, and Nuclear Hot Seat. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, the names of any guests whose comments you use, and me. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that, as Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. There you have it. You've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.